Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSillaCast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, October 17th, 2021, and this is show number 858. Well, tomorrow is yet another big announcement from Apple and all fingers and toes at Casa Sheridan Arcross that it will finally be the unveiling of the higher-end MacBook Pros. I sure hope you'll join Steve and me at podfeet.com slash chat during the Unleashed event on Monday so we can, you know, text back and forth about whether our collective dreams are coming true. If you haven't joined us in the live chat before, it's absolutely great fun to be with the other NoSilla castaways in Discord for the event. In the afternoon, I'll be chit-chatting with Doc Rock about these announcements for Chit Chat Across the Pond, and I'll be on in a few minutes with Ken Ray for a quick discussion about the announcements too. So I'm going to get my fill of whatever it is, and it better fill my hopes and dreams. Before we dig into the show, I want to tell you about the latest episode of Know a Little More by Tom Merritt. In this episode, he explains RCS, or Rich Communication Services. The reason you care about RCS is that it's the replacement technology coming for your mobile carrier's messaging system. It's going to replace SMS. Now, Tom explains the problem would be solved really well and the background on SMS, and then how RCS may solve these problems. Now, Apple hasn't support, announced support for RCS, but other companies have. And when Apple does, this might be able to give us some help with the green bubble, blue bubble problem. Tom describes in detail why the green bubble, blue bubble problem happens and how message threads get splintered. And it was a bunch of stuff I didn't know before. Now, RCS is lacking some features you do get with messaging apps like Telegram, Signal, and WhatsApp, but it's good that there's some hope for the future. I really enjoyed this episode, and like I said, it clarified a lot of things for me about RCS versus SMS and where we are in the progress towards a standard. You can find Know a Little More in your podcatcher of choice at knowalittlemore.com. In this week's episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond, we've got another programming by Stealth, and Bart is going to launch full steam into phase two that we talked about last week. Bart introduces us to the Node Package Manager and Node itself. Unlike our mini-series within a series for Git and Chez Moi, Bart is not going to do an exhaustive walk through everything about NPM and Node. Instead, he's going to teach us how to use what we need as we go along. In order for that to make any sense at all, in this particular installment, he explains to us at a high level what Node and, Node and NPM are and what problems they solve. This lesson isn't all theory, though. We actually get to use Node and NPM to build a tiny self-contained JavaScript app. I had great fun in this installment, and Bart's always fabulous tutorial show notes are particularly well-written this time. You can find those over at pbs.bartofficer.net, and you can subscribe to Programming by Stealth in your podcatcher of choice. I've been working on a major update to my time shifter clock for quite a long time, and it is finally released and is now available at timeshifterclock.com. I even bought it its own domain name. Now, if you're not familiar with my web app for shifting time, let me tell you the problem it solves. Let's say you need to meet with several people across different geographic regions, and you need to convey to them the time that you've chosen for the meeting. While it's trivially easy to find out what time it is currently in multiple cities, it's much more difficult to find out what time it will be in multiple cities at a time in the future. That's where Time Shifter Clock comes in. With this web app, you can search for multiple cities and then shift a slider forward in time as far as a week in half-hour increments. The time will update in each city to reflect that shifted time. When you see the time you like in your own region, you click a copy button to capture the times in each city that you've chosen. Now, the cool part is you can paste that URL into a message to the people with whom you hope to meet. 
When they open the URL, they will see the exact same times in the different cities that you chose. Now, let's say they don't like that time and they want to propose a different time. They can simply shift the slider to their preferred time, copy the URL, and send it back to you as a counterproposal. Now, if you're not a developer, that's pretty much all you need to know. It's free and easy to use, and I think it solves a real problem. If you find it useful, in, on iOS, you can even add it to your home screen so it acts like a native app. The main advancement in version 2.0 of Timeshifter Clock is that you can add as many cities as you want. I have literally not set a limit. The second enhancement is that the URL you'll be copying is far less messy looking than it was in version 1. It was pretty long with just two cities in version 1, and it would have gotten pretty crazy with any more. Now you'll see the names in the URL of each city you've chosen, but the time conversion all happens through universal what is it? UTC. What does UTC stand for? I should know that. But anyway, it all happens through UTC and that simplifies the URL quite a bit. Now, I had a lot of people poke at this version to test it before release and Helmo from the Netherlands figured out that the original version didn't actually account for time zones that were off by a half or quarter hour. This has also been corrected in version 2.0. Now, there's one constraint of the design that is important to note. This tool uses the standard moment database for time zones and time zone names. If you don't find the city you want to use, that means it's simply not in that standard database and I can't fix that. I know it's a bit frustrating to have to figure out the closest city or time zone name, but there's nothing to be done about that. The worst example I found is that since all of India is in one time zone, and by the way on the half hour, the only city in the database for India is Kolkata also known as Calcutta to some people. It doesn't have the capital, New Delhi, or even the huge city of Mumbai, only Kolkata. If you can't find the city you want, the easiest thing to do is just search for the time zone name. Now, I do have a call for help. There's one opportunity for significant enhancement that I've not been able to accomplish, and for that, I am putting out this call for help. I spent more than a month trying to figure out how to do error checking for the entry of the city names. If you're a developer, perhaps you can help me fix this. As of right now, if you type in gibberish for the city name, the web app just sits there and doesn't do anything at all. Likewise, you can type in a perfectly valid city name that is in the database, such as America slash Detroit. But if you don't select the identical name from the dropdown, you actually won't be looking at the time in Detroit. It will still be in the, uh, the time in the default city. I think it should show some sort of alert telling the user, hey, you got to select from the pull-down, or maybe somehow automatically select it if you did type in something that makes sense. Timeshifter Clock is released as an open source project on GitHub, and I've put a link in the show notes, so I hope the super nerds will jump in and create that error checking that should be in the tool and I can't figure out how to do. I got to tell you, it's not for lack of trying on my part, but I just can't figure out how to do it. It's the drop-down men menu library I'm using that causes the problems. Anyway, I built version 1.0 as part of a challenge in Bart Bouchot's and my Programming by Stealth podcast, and I chose the first two default cities to be Los Angeles and Dublin, because I live in LA, Bart lives in Dublin. It's my app, so I scratch my own itch with it. Version 2.0 is the result of a feature request by Dr. Marianne Gary, who is constantly meeting with people all over the globe at the same time. She lives in New Zealand, so as an homage to her, all additional cities added will have their default city set to Auckland, New Zealand. I'm very proud of my third web app, and I hope you find it as useful as Marianne and I do. For literally decades, I've been trying to figure out a way to add elapsed time in Excel. And this week, with help of my friend Mike, we figured out how to do it. I feel like I have made fire. 
This problem with Excel and all spreadsheet applications is that by default, they treat entered time as absolute time, not elapsed time. If I type in 10:00, Excel thinks I mean 10 a.m., not 10 hours and zero minutes. An example to prove that uh, Excel doesn't understand is if you ask Excel to add 10 colon 00 plus 15 00, if it's elapsed time, you should get 26 00. But instead, you get 1 00 because it's gone around another day and now it thinks it's 1 a.m. Now, I've just started working on a new web app to add time, so I'm not going to have to fight this problem anymore. But coincidentally, a listener to the Mac Geek App asked the question of how to add time in Excel since it thinks it's a date and it wants this person wanted it to be elapsed time. I figured it out, but it's a, it's a fun story. When you enter time into Excel, the default format is general. This is kind of a magical format where Excel just does its darndest to figure out what you mean. Under the hood, it calculates a decimal value that represents the percentage of a 24-hour day. For example, 24,00,00 would be represented simply as 1. 12,00,00 would be represented as 0.5 because it's a half a day. 48,00,00 would be represented as 2 because it's 2 days, 48 hours. This decimal value will become very interesting to our story, and I have to give my, my personal friend Mike 100% credit for figuring out what these decimal values mean. Now, there's going to be another Mike in the story later. This is Mike that I know in real life. In a very odd twist of logic, changing the format of the entered time from general to square bracket H colon MM colon SS, which you'll find under custom in the formatting, tells Excel that you want to treat this entered value as elapsed, not absolute time. Now, those square brackets around the H are very important. Without the square brackets, you would be explicitly telling Excel that you want it to be absolute time. So now, with this new format, square bracket H colon MM colon SS, you can add 10 colon 00 colon 00 to 15 colon 00 colon 00, and you will get 25 instead of 1 a.m. Now, this is all dandy, but you might find yourself in a confusing situation if you try to edit these cell values, even with 15,00,00 formatted with absolute time. If you click in that cell, the formula bar will show the value as 3 p.m. If you have edit and cell enabled, you'll also see this absolute time of 3 p.m. in the cell when you double click it. Now, perhaps you can live with it this way, but it's very weird to me that if I want to change 15 colon 00 to 15 colon 00 colon 01, but the number I see is 3 p.m., I mean, it's, it's weird. I can do it and it works, but it's weird. Now, if you suspect that it will lead to confusion for you like it does to me, there's a little trick Mike and I worked out that might help. When you type in your times, put a single quote before them. In the cell, the single quote won't show, but if you go to edit, you'll see the elapsed time with that single quote before it. It's a little bit strange, but not as jarring as if it shows the absolute time with that AM and PM nonsense. Now, you'd think the story ends right here, but what if you want to subtract elapsed time? If you subtract a smaller elapsed time from a larger elapsed time, you will not run into a lick of trouble. It works just fine in Excel. But if your calculation ends up with a negative time value, Excel will barf and, and simply show you an infinitely long set of hash symbols in the resultant cell. Now, you might think I don't realize that the set of hash symbols is how spreadsheets let you know that the result of your calculation is just it has too many digits to fit the width of its column. Now, I do know about that. 
But that's not what's happening here. No matter how wide you stretch this column, you just get more and more and more hash symbols. Now, I'm going to give you the answer of how to fix this, and it's trivially simple, but first I'm going to make you suffer along with everything else I tried to do first. Here's where things get interesting. Remember I said that all of these times are really decimal numbers under the hood? If you select this negative time value that's just spitting out hash symbols, and you change the format to a decimal number, the true negative value will be revealed. As a simple example, if you enter 100.00 minus 2, the decimal answer will be negative 1 24th or negative 0.04. Now, what good does it do you to have a time value that's a decimal? We can actually use that decimal to build the time back up piece by piece. Let's say we want to subtract some complex times like 10.04.32 minus 16.32.48. We'll get a decimal value of negative 0.27. If you take that negative 2.27 and multiply by 24 hours, you get negative 6.47 hours. That tells us that the value for our time is actually negative 6 hours with some leftovers. If we take the 6 away, we can multiply negative 0.47 times 60 minutes, we get negative 28.27. So now that tells us we've got 28 minutes. So we've got negative 6 hours and 28 minutes. Do it one more time, remove the 28, take that 0.27 times 60 seconds, and we get roughly 16 seconds. Our final answer is negative 62816. Yay, that was easy, right? Especially in an audio podcast. I bet that worked really well. Anyway, here's a fun thing about those calculations. You heard me say roughly 16 seconds. Why is it roughly 16 seconds? It should have been exact. I did the calculation in Excel, and it came out negative 15.999999, and you know where I'm going with that. It took me a little while to figure out why, but a quick refresher listen to Tom Merritt explaining teraflops on his show Know a Little More found the answer. In this episode, he does a high-level explanation of how floating-point math is just an approximation. Once I came to peace with the idea of rounding the answer, I spent about a half day trying to figure out, now, how do I display the answer into a cell? Remember, I can't just put it back as a negative time value because it's just going to turn back to, to hashes. Well, I used the concatenate function to put the numbers back together with colons between them. While this technically did work, for numbers less than two digits, it looked dumb. It said negative one colon one colon 50. I wanted it to say 10150. So I started bothering Alistair Jenks about how to format it as negative 1 colon 01 colon 50, and he gave me some fun methods, including concatenating an, an extra zero on the front, but what if it already had two digits, so we'd have to take the left two values, but what about that pesky negative sign? Well, we take the absolute value first and then multiply it by negative 1, but what if it was supposed to be positive? And then I stopped, and I did a Google search on how to display negative time values in Excel. Get this. The way you can allow, you can take one hour minus two hours and have it display the value is you have to open Excel preferences and in the calculation section, set it to use the 1904 date system. Boom, the hashes are gone for time formatted cells that are negative. Okay, a normal person wouldn't still be working on this, but anyone who's gone this far has to take it to the end. I cannot explain why setting the spreadsheet to the 1904 date system fixes the negative time values, but I did read up on what the heck this is even about. I found a Microsoft support document that explains early on, Excel for Windows used the 1900 date system, which means the earliest supported date is January 1st, 1900. 
But the design of the early Macintosh computer only allowed dates after January 1st, 1904, which is obviously logical since the year 1900 wasn't even a leap year. I mean, duh, right? Why would Apple have supported that? Well, at some point, Mac started supporting the 1900 date system, bending to the will of Microsoft, I suppose. The consequence of these two different date systems is that every date has a serial number that is the elapsed number of days from the beginning of that date system. Now, I really wish I knew why that difference made negative time values invalid in 1904, but not in 1900. So if anybody knows the answer to that, I would really like to know. Now, I figure at least 8% of you are wondering, how does numbers handle time math? It's got to be easier, right? Well, formatting as elapsed time is definitely easier because numbers has a format called duration. That's easier to remember and use than square bracket H colon MM colon SS, but it's almost as dumb. If you look at the formula bar, numbers represents 13 colon 00 colon 00 shows it as 1 a.m. Oh my gosh. Okay, now here's the crazy part. Numbers has zero problems calculating the subtraction of two times that result in a negative value. But guess what it can't do? It can't add two times. I'm serious. The result is a red triangle exclamation point that says the formula's arguments can only include one date value. Wait, wait, I can't add two date values, but I can subtract them? Well, by the time I got this far, I was pretty ex exhausted from my Excel adventures, so I did a search for how to add two time values in numbers. It appears that numbers isn't really sure what you mean if you use the format 02-12-40. Heck, that could be a date or a time. Who knows? But what if you write it out in a human-friendly way? Then numbers knows just what to do. So instead of writing 02-12-40, you write 2H-12M-40S. 2 hours, 12 minutes, and 40 seconds. It works perfectly, and it has two glorious side effects. First, you can actually add and subtract time with utter abandon. And the second glorious effect is that in the formula bar, it shows exactly the time you wrote, and it is not a date. Now, there's a one last bit to the story. After I originally wrote this up, Mike Price, also known as Grumpy in the Podfeet Slack, provided new information on how to use numbers to add and subtract time. He discovered that if you format the cells as duration before you type the time, it actually, you are allowed to enter the time as hours, minutes, and seconds as H colon MM colon SS, and it will honor the duration format. If you type it in first and change it to duration, it doesn't work. But if you change it to duration before you type it in, it does work. Now, I hadn't noticed this other thing, but Mike also pointed out that duration formatting has options. So you can choose the H colon MM colon SS version or the HMS format, you know, where you type in, you know, 2H12M40S. While he was experimenting, Mike also discovered something else cool. I'm going to quote him exactly how he told it to us in Slack. Quote, I was also impressed that if some pesky data entry person, you know the type, enters a silly duration value like 5 colon 72 colon 105, numbers knows that you really meant 6 colon 13 colon 45. Now that is really, really nifty. So I think the bottom line to the question of how do you add time in Excel should be, you don't. Use numbers instead and write in any format you want and it'll work. I'm going to write a web app, like I said, to add and subtract time, and now I have a much easier way of proving whether my math is correct in the web app. I will be using numbers to check my math. 
Hi folks, this is Charles Goucher from the Silicon Valley Mac User Group. When I was last here for NoSilicast number 592, I was preparing to head off to Alaska with Princess Cruises for an ocean cruise. It's a great vacation, hopping between the Alaskan islands with some of the best American glaciers you can see. But internet connections on a cruise ship have traditionally been notoriously slow. Even at the best of times, they offer dial-up speeds and they charged by the minute for it. Allison tried a similar cruise in 2012 and had some choice words for them. However, in the last three years, Princess Cruises has upgraded all of their ships with a new medallion net, and they now promise the best Wi-Fi at sea. So it feels like a great time to give this a test. And here I am, back from Alaska, having tested it out. And the experience is... mixed. First off, some background. Cruise ships spend most of their time far away from any cellular phone service, so they have to rely on satellites for their internet connection. That has meant connecting to satellites in geostationary orbit, 22,000 miles up, 36,000 kilometers for you non-Americans. That's a long distance. That's 240 milliseconds of travel time for any internet signals. Bandwidth can be reasonably fast for downstream data, like DirecTV, but absolutely horrible for upstream. In 2014, I was still seeing connection speeds of maybe 50k per second. Enter the Princess Medallion Net, or more importantly, SES Systems. This satellite company from Luxembourg has been flying television satellites for decades, and starting in 2012, they built a new system specifically for data use in remote regions. Their O3B satellites, short for the other 3 billion people, fly in medium Earth orbit, 5,000 miles up, 8,000 kilometers. That gives the system much lower latency, and modern satellite tech gives them much higher bandwidth, down and up. Every cruise company on the planet is signing up with them for shipboard internet, and Princess is the first cruise line to outfit their entire fleet with its service. But there's a problem. The satellites have a lower orbit, so they are moving across your sky. They're not streaking by as fast as Elon Musk's Starlink system, but they do need about 20 satellites to provide global coverage. The cruise ship has to maintain a link to two to three satellites at any one time to keep a continuous signal. And that wonderful new satellite system has a geographic limit. The satellite's orbit only goes up to about 50 degrees of latitude, a little bit north of Vancouver. Alaska starts at 55 degrees, so the satellites while they can still be seen from the low reaches, are pretty low on the horizon. Time to test it out. Overall, it's a very solid connection. The service is almost always up. Princess is worried about low bandwidth, so the cost is measured by the day instead of by the minute. No more worries about having to log in, get your stuff done, and log off as quickly as possible. Just connect and leave it. Email and Slack messages come in whenever. Read them or post them at your convenience. Pricing is reasonable, $10 to $20 per day, depending on how many devices you want to connect at one time. 
There's a growing trend of cruises bundling internet service with drinks and other benefits into one cost-effective package, so it's very easy to just get the service and forget about it. But the speed is disappointing. Best internet at sea gave me a pretty high expectation for it. I measured first off the coast of Canada in the open ocean. Water in every direction as far as the eye could see, so I had an unobstructed connection. Speeds came in at a decent 35 megabits downstream, about three and a half megabits upstream. Fairly reasonable. Well within the needed amount for web pages or email, but video was pushing things. A visit to YouTube was getting 480p resolution at best. My second measurement was just inside the glacial fjords of Alaska, with mountains on both sides of the ship. The mountains are blocking the good satellites, pushing the connection back to the old geostationary ones. As a result, I was getting download speeds of less than 3 megabits download, and only 1 megabit up. Adequate for basic internet needs, but nothing that could possibly handle video streaming. YouTube tried valiantly, but had long pauses for rebuffering every 10 to 20 seconds or so. Zoom conferencing wouldn't even connect. Not exactly a positive experience there. But the view of the mountains were really pretty. I did get one very pleasant surprise. Regular phone calls on board ships use the old maritime cell phone connection and are hideously expensive. But my cell phone carrier uses an internet service whenever possible, and MedallionNet counts for it. Given the slower speeds I was uh, seeing with the ship, I was expecting a little problem with that. There weren't any. I made a lot of calls on that trip, and they were perfect. No glitches, no dropouts, and no $200 phone bill at the end of the trip. This is great. If at all possible, make certain on your trip that your cell phone plan can use a Wi-Fi connection and turn the cell part off entirely. Your wallet will thank you. So where does this leave the other cruise lines? They're getting there. Carnival Cruises, Royal Caribbean, and Norwegian Cruise Lines are all installing similar systems, but it's going to be a few years before all of the ships are upgraded. In the meantime, whether you end up with a per-day charge or per-minute charge will depend very much on what cruise line you're using and what ship you're on. For extra fun... SES, the satellite company, is upgrading to their new O3B Empower satellites, which offer gigabit speeds to thousands of customers simultaneously. 5G speeds for everybody! Princess is, com is promising YouTube, Netflix, and Zoom calls to all of the passengers at once. Video conferencing from the middle of the Pacific! But not yet. The first of the new generation of satellites launches next month. And they won't be online until the end of 2022. I guess we'll just have to wait a little bit longer. Don't get me wrong, the service now is a lot better than what we were used to even five years ago. And for people like us that live online, this is a great way to get outdoors while not tearing your hair out about when you'll be back in range of civilization. But the grand advertisements about super fast speeds in the age of modern social media are not true yet. Probably as well. I should put the computer down and go watch the pretty scenery. 
I chatted a little bit with Wally Trewinski, and he was surprised that I didn't get as good a service as he did on his own trips. It turns out Wally had cruised in the Caribbean Sea, well within the satellite coverage area. So, yeah, service should be better there. But there's only one way to be sure. Time to get another cruise. My wife and I will sail down to Mexico in November. I'll get the full experience, and with luck, I'll video chat with someone while I'm actually out in the ocean. Sounds like I'm going to need to file a third report. I'll see you all in December. All right, Charles, I sure hope that you do do another uh, report for us because this is this is really interesting. This I'm not sure that'll make me want to go on cruises, but it was miserable being disconnected from my lovely internet. You know, I, I remember saying that I realized when I was away from the, the internet that I didn't just like the internet, I love the internet. I have to have the internet. It was really upsetting to me to be away from it. So it's, it's pretty fun to find out that maybe things are going to get a little bit, uh, a little bit easier on that front. I was thinking at one time we might take a, a river cruise down the Rhine, and uh, be, I think that's Germany. And uh, the best part would be that there'd be internet because we'd be near this, the uh, cities and stuff. So uh, maybe I'm not meant for the cruise life. Thank you so much for bringing that. That was, uh, that was fantastic, Charles. I hope to hear from you again. You've heard me drone on and on and on about how to add time using Excel. And as I mentioned, that struggle over the years has been what's inspired me to write a web app to add and subtract time. Seems like a fun project, and it seems like it's within my grasp of skills so far in programming. I've already started working on it, and at the rate I'm, I'm going that I seem to be able to carve out time and my skills at doing it should be ready in a year or two. <laughs> well, anyway, I have a vision of what this app layout would look like, but I thought it would be fun if we crowdsourced this a little bit. You don't have to approach this as a programmer. In fact, I'd prefer it if you thought about this from a regular human perspective. If you had an app that, that would allow you to add or, and or subtract time a bunch of times together and get an answer, in an ideal world, what would that look like? How would you lay that out to be efficient and easy to use without having to read a bunch of instructions? So here's some things to consider before you answer my question. Should there be separate fields for the hours, minutes, and seconds? Or should maybe the user have to write the entire time in that 0.00.00.0 format? Now, how many hours maximum should I allow? Should I allow decimal seconds? How many digits should I allow? Should there be buttons for add and subtract? Should those add subtract buttons be on the left or the right or maybe even in their own row between the time entry fields? Should the total update when you're done entering the last number or should it update only when you hit an add or subtract button or maybe an equals button? Would it be distracting if it's auto-updating the total or would that be awesome? Should the total be at the top or the bottom? If it's at the bottom, I'd have to make sure it doesn't roll off screen. Now, also, make sure you think about mobile in the layout. How to use the small space efficiently, but that, without making the UI hard to understand. Would you choose a different layout if it's on mobile versus a bigger screen? What haven't I thought about things that you should take into consideration? So now here's the fun part. I don't want you to answer me in words. I want you to draw me a picture. You can use your fancy pants Apple Pencil and your iPad and Apple Notes, or you could use OmniGraffle on the Mac to draw pretty buttons and fields. Heck, you could use engineering quadrille paper with a straight edge and a mechanical pencil. You could even use crayons, scissors, and construction paper. I don't care how you do it. I just want it to be visual. I want it to convey your vision of the perfect layout for a time adder app. Oh yeah, and how about the name? Time Adder does say most of what it does, but I've never been good at naming things, so suggestions on the name are also welcome. 
Now, I posted this uh, question in our Slack at podfeed.com slash Slack, and Alistair Jenks and Nuclear John have both sent in some really great drawings that are making me really think about the layout. If you want to answer over in there, that would be great. If you don't want to answer there, just send me an email at allison at podfeed.com, or you can tweet it at me at podfeed if you want. Any way you want to show me your vision would be awesome. Remember, pictures only, and what names do you think you sh- I should use? Thanks in advance for your ideas. As you know, this show is not financed by advertisers. It's supported by listeners like you who contribute through Patreon and PayPal. Now, I always make a point of telling you about the new patrons, but what I haven't been great about is recognizing the patrons who've been supporting the show for a long time. I'm going to start rectifying that, calling out our heroes maybe 10 at a time. This week, I'd like to recognize Mark Poley, Brett Kennedy, uh, Richard Nelson, Mike DeStefano Jr., Mac Lurker, Kevin Alder, Bob Lay, Roger Nash, Christopher Ryan, and Tom Stewart as the 10 longest contributing uh, people on Patreon. All of these fine folks and more have been contributing for over five years straight. Thank you for your continued support of the Podfeet Podcast. Now, if you'd like to join this group of fine folks, please head on over to podfeet.com slash Patreon and pledge your support. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchats. How are you today, Bart? I am in good form. I am well exercised. All right. Well, we're ready for some Security Bits. Let's kick right in. Okie dokie. So last time we talked about uh, the new technique by the bad guys to bypass two-factor authentication by having real-time bad guys on standby. So they want to get into your Gmail. They trick you into opening a dodgy email, they get notified when you click the link, and in real time, they ask you for your 2FA code, and they then pass it on to Google, thereby getting straight in. It gives them about a two-minute window to do it. Uh, And it's happening more? It's happening more, and Brian Krebs has an example. Someone managed, as is always the case with this malware as a service, a lot of people are very bad at securing their malware. So uh, (laughs) Brian Krebs actually got to play around in one of these control panels, and it literally is a web interface a human being sits at and it makes a very loud dong noise when it's time to go and intercept and then the human is alerted and they do their thing. And they, in this wow. case, it was being used to attack Coinbase. So <sighs> stealing cryptocurrency. So very real issue there because, of course, cryptocurrency being non-decentralized by nature means there's no authority to give you your money back. If they steal your cryptocurrency, they have your cryptocurrency. So, Yikes. Yeah. Meanwhile, the European Parliament has given their annual journalism award to the group of people behind the reporting on the Pegasus malware and that whole thing. So that's nice. And uh, which one was Pegasus again? The NSO groups one that was spying on the okay. journalists and the ministers and the go, you know, all, all of <laughs> okay, that so fun. Okay, that's what I thought. So again, this is the journalists giving journalists awards for helping journalists know that journalists are being uh, attacked. No, no, European Parliament. But they awarded the journalism prize to journalists right. who reported on journalists being attacked. True. <laughs> but in this case, it was journalists and politicians. So the politicians uh. gave the journalists an award for reporting for the journalists reporting on the politicians. Anyway. Yeah, you're got right. It, it's even it. more circular. <laughs> okay. Um A few months ago, in the middle of the summer, Apple released a paper explaining why forcing them to allow side loading will be a terrible idea from a security point of view. 
They have doubled down on that with a more detailed paper they released entitled Building a Trusted Ecosystem for Millions of Apps, a Threat Analysis of Sideloading. It's a 31-page hmm. document. Um, I, I won't say I read it in detail, but I did skim every page and read all the sort of the, the main points. Um, it's actually quite a good document. And there's a very good summary from Tom's Guides, if you don't want to read it all. That's sort of a shorter way of doing it. But some points stuck out to me in particular. So to to base their argument on fact rather than speculation, Apple have really used Android as a sort of a natural experiment. So we have two app stores in the world, one that is closed and one that is one you know, sorry, we have two platforms. We have a platform with side loading and a platform without side loading. So can we tell a difference? We've oh, so got a control group, two? right? Correct. And so Apple go out of their way in the paper to split apart. So there is more malware on Android, but there's two reasons for that. Their store has laxer rules and they have side loading. So Apple okay. split apart those two things, and they, they say that based on the research that's been done, 96% of malware attacks come from outside the App Store. So only 4% is from the bad App Store management. 96% is from sideloading. Uh, just to be pedantic, uh, your show notes say 93? Yeah, it's possible. One of the two me's is misremembering the story. Uh, <laughs> okay, we should make sure it's the right number before we go on, before we finish up. But um, yeah, so that's interesting. So that's a, a good statistic on the uh, Android App Store then, on the Google Play Store. It is that actually. Means so while it's the Play much, Store is much better looser. than we thought. Yeah, so while it is much looser than Apple Store, its amount of extra malware is less than you would imagine. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, you know, there is more malware than Android, but not stupendously more. The side loading okay. is a bigger issue. Uh, the other thing is that Apple also went into detail about th their own experiment with side loading. You, there is a form of side loading on iOS today and has been for a couple of years now. It is the enterprise program where corporations can register for certificates to allow them to self-sign apps that bypass App Store review. Oh, yeah, and that's that actually process, been around for a long time because that was, yeah. uh, I remember actually doing it when I was working and I've been retired for, I think, eight years. So it's been around for like a decade. Yeah, I mean, I keep forgetting that the iPhone is 2007. The App Store was 2008. It wasn't there from 2008, but I don't think it was long after that. It's probably been there since 2010. Yeah, I retired in 2013 and I learned how to sign an app. Inside hey. the in in as an in enterprise app, so okay. So, are they seeing malware from that? Yeah, we've seen it too. Like uh, Onavo, the spyware VPN from Facebook, was distributed that way. Um, that's one of the mm. examples they call it. They also call it a malware, a traditional malware campaign that was distributed that way. And just this week, I heard a report on the podcast about malware being distributed that way uh, to trick people into handing over cryptocurrency. That one was. So even on their closed system, which you have to jump through hoops, because of black markets, there are people, bad guys occasionally manage to buy the signing certificates on the black market and do a malware campaign. So even on Apple's very closed sideloading system, there are already abuses. And so Apple's argument is, if we have problems with this, just imagine what would happen if you made us open the floodgates. Now, it is kind of interesting that they didn't do any kind of comparison for malware, say, on the Mac. That would have been an interesting comparison where there is an official app store and yet everything else is sideloaded. 
They just they they did actually touch on that in their due, in their midsummer document. That that was one of the key points, or was it in evidence to Congress? They did recently touch on. They recently discussed that, um, mm. which a lot of a lot of news podcasters were like ha ha ha. Apple are Apple are saying mean things about the Mac, and it's like no, they were just being truthful. Like, yeah, there, I, there is I, more I malware on the of, Mac. Yeah, I, I would also. Th- I don't know, maybe the sophistication of the average user on the Mac versus the sophistication of the average user on the iPhone, since the iPhone hits absolutely everybody. That is very true. Maybe yeah, the iPhone we're is less like an, sophisticated an, as an aggregate. Right. People don't think of their iPhone as a computer. So their behaviors are very different. And so that it could be they could be very naive users. They could be very vulnerable. As opposed to just right. vulnerable. Then again, yeah, there's also the statistic thought. that says that something like 90% of uh, iPhone users don't load any apps at all. <laughs> I, feel, I don't know. I'm, I'm quoting that off the top of my head, but it was some huge percentage never add anything. They just browse the web because everything, yeah, everything, everything's <laughs> on the interwebs. Why would I need anything else? Or the apps are right there. No, I they have must the, install the f- WhatsApp. They must all install WhatsApp these days. And Yeah, that's true. That's true. Outside That's of the US, anyway. Have changed now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another thing they argue, and I think it's quite a convincing argument, it's not something I'd ever thought of until Gruber started mentioning it a few months ago. Uh, once there are mechanisms to sideload, people like me who do not want to sideload are going to come under pressure to sideload because it is then possible for corporations and schools and so forth to start insisting that people install these apps now that it's possible. So you could imagine during COVID, schools saying, no, you must install this app or you can't, or you can't join school on your iPad. Oh, right, right, right. So you right, end right. up with these very perverse incentives. And of course, once it's possible, then anything that tricks you, any sort of phishing, <laughs> that's a pretty good target, right? Mm. You know, yeah, is yeah. a thing worthy of doing, and so... You bring up schools as a perfect example of where there's often somebody who thinks they're real smart and isn't maybe, or it's they it's know. like in government, they think they're real smart and they're going to come up with this app for, uh, you know, tracking mm-hmm. people with uh, COVID uh, exposure and things like that. We've seen too many mistakes in a row, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. They know just enough to be dangerous. Really bloody dangerous. Um, and then what made me genuinely chuckle out loud as I was on my walk um, was there's an entire page full of quotey bubbles of different shapes and sizes quoting European and American government security agencies giving official advice to disable sideloading on Android as a major security thing you must do. You must oh. stop your employee sideloading. And so you, it's obviously a letter to European and American regulators, don't make us do this damn silly thing. And right. they're quoting their own experts at them, which is just hilarious. So the reason I know you tweeted that out was because uh, Sandy found that tweet and posted it inside our Slack at podfeet.com slash Slack. So I got to see that in there. Uh, yeah, it is a, it is a really interesting bubbles. little little Thank graphic you. there. Yeah. So that made me chuckle. That's one of the 31 pages. And it's like, and there is a it's like Interpol saying, don't let yeah. people sideload. Don't sideload. This is dangerous. Interesting. Yeah, and National Center for Cybersecurity and all these kind of big names on both sides of the Atlantic. So, it's, yeah, that made me genuinely chuckle. I thought that was very brazen of Apple, but, you know, 
No, but yeah. they have merit, you know. They must really believe So anyway, it. yeah, so that I spent quite a bit of time reading that report because it was 31 pages and uh, I had all the other show notes written. I left that story to last and I had time. So I figured, hey, I'll have a read. All right. Um, continuing world of social media tweaking themselves to suck a little bit less. Um, <laughs> Twitter have added a new feature that is going to warn you before you join a conversation that Twitter thinks it's going to be a contentious one. And do you really want to get involved in something contentious? I love the title of the article that you, you linked to an iMore article. New Twitter changes should make it easier to avoid the drama llamas. <laughs> I did chuckle at that. I had a couple of possible links to put in the show notes. Uh, I picked that one. I, it made, yeah, I've never heard that, but like I'm it. going to use it now. Yeah, I wonder how well that's going to work. I mean, if, if you type in left wing or right wing or, you know, there's a lot of words that you could type in that I would go, yeah, this one's going to be contentious. But I think it's when you go to at reply into a conversation. Yeah, yeah. So, so what's actually in play there is who as well as what, right? So if you're about to at reply at some sort of reactionary gum bean, mm-hmm. then, you know, yeah. they, know they, they have all that AI that's usually working to make them money, but it, they seem to be turning a lot, of that AI toward, a lot of that AI towards making our lives a little bit nicer. So I, I like that about Twitter. It's, it seems yeah, to be going a different tweet. direction than Facebook, doesn't it? Just a little, yeah. You, you definitely get an impression that management have a different opinion of the universe, and I, I prefer theirs. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, we will say something nice about Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, WhatsApp are rolling out uh, end-to-end encryption for backups of chats. Yeah, okay. So that's nice. I, it asked me again today, do you want to back up your chats? I was like, no, this is an ephemeral conversation. <laughs> Delete, you know, d- don't back them up. Waste of my time. Anyway. Uh, we have two sort of kind of deep dives, but they're not really that deep and they're not really bad news. In fact, neither of them are bad news. So, oh, and did I actually get around to writing the second one? I don't think you uh, did. I didn't get around to writing the second one. Oopsie daisies. Okay, we have one deep dive. <laughs> <laughs> I might talk around the second one, even if there's no write-up. Um, so, Facebook had a very bad day. I think it happened <laughs> shortly after we recorded last. It feels like forever ago, but it was less than two weeks ago. So it well, it was Sunday night was sixty mi- the 60 Minutes thing and then there and then there was the uh the uh congressional hearings and then there was the very bad day boom 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 and that was all right after we recorded yeah and because of the timing particularly there was a lot of sort of hmm is that coincidence like (laughs) facebook spent six hours down just after they've given this highly noteworthy, shall we say, testimony from the whistleblower. <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was interesting. Uh, and at the time, my first reaction was, ooh, this is an insider, a rogue employee making a very dramatic exit, or some sysadmins having a really bad day. And I've been that sysadmin. And unfortunately, it was sysadmins having a really bad day. Mm. And it comes down to that uh, a perfect storm of failure. Um, one small thing, one small mistake triggers a cascade that runs away to the point where it makes recovery very difficult. So the root of all of this is something I don't think we've ever really talked about. We sort of mentioned the fact that the internet has routers and they do magic and that makes the internet go. (laughs) But we haven't really dug in in any sort of great detail. So in this case, it was actually the algorithm that makes the internet work that was the cause of Facebook's nightmare something called the Border Gateway Protocol, or BGP. 
Uh, well, I, I was is, surprised I had never heard of this because I know we've gone in depth on DNS in uh, Taming the Terminal, but I had never heard of BGP. It has nothing to do with DNS. Unfortunately, there was a lot of confusion because mm. the IP addresses of Facebook's DNS servers fell off the internet because BGP was broken. It had nothing to do with DNS. Oh. They were just the IP addresses that got unrooted. Okay. So that's why there was a lot of people saying it was DNS. It had nothing to do with DNS. Border Gateway Protocols is not related to DNS. It's, so basically, we say that we use DNS to turn our human-friendly names into IP addresses, and then the computer connects to the IP address. Wait a second. I've just omitted something really very big there. How does one router on the internet know where 149.157.22.66 is? Yeah, the DNS is set at what IP address, but how on earth does it know where to send that IP address? Right. Okay. The internet is a grid of interconnected routers. Each router has multiple connections to other routers. There's all sorts of possible... There's like infinity, infinity many possible routes for that packet of information to go from A to B. There could be loops if you get it wrong. I mean, it's a massive problem. And the reason we don't hear about BGP is that our home networks don't need BGP because our home networks... There is, right, you pick any two computers, or sorry, let's say devices. Pick any two devices in your house and draw them on your network diagram, and there is exactly one possible path for the traffic to flow. There is never two options. There is never the option of right. a loop. Right. Even if you have a Y-shaped setup like, like we recommend for your, keeping your IoT separate, there's still only one line between every two devices. So they don't need a routing algorithm. But the internet is an interconnected grid. And the reason the internet is resilient is because it's an interconnected grid. That's what makes the internet the internet. But no human could manage the complexity of the internet. So the routers have to figure it out for themselves. They learn the shape of the internet. And then they make decisions in real time. Oh, I have a packet for so-and-so. I have four possible cables plugged into me. A, B, C, or D. That way, that way, that way, that way. So that's what BGP does. It's that... So BGP helps the routers learn the shape of the internet. Okay. And they do that through what are called, basically, they're like gossipy neighbors. <laughs> every router tells its neighbor everything it knows all the time. And that way, the information ripples out. And so you're going, by the way, did you hear 149.157's over there now? <laughs> oh, great, yeah, okay. And they just chatter away to each other. Uh, but the source of the chatter are so-called announcements, which are made by people who own IP addresses. So you are assigned as the owner of a specific range of IP addresses. You're Verizon. You probably own a few thousand, a few million of them. You get to say where those IP addresses are on the internet. And they're called announcements. And because things come and go, right, you also get to do an unannouncement. You also get to say, stop sending me traffic for these IP addresses. I don't do that anymore. Okay. Don't, don't annoy me with those packets. I'm not, I'm not a router for that anymore. So a company like Facebook have an even extra layer. So you're used to thinking of one IP address being on one computer, right? Right. The computer has an IP address. But with content delivery networks, they don't do that. They use BGP to make one IP address exist on potentially thousands of servers scattered all across the world. And they use router announcements to tell everyone all the different places that that IP address could be. And every router sends you through their shortest possible path. So imagine that 
say Apple Plus, Apple TV Plus have, imagine they only have two servers, right? Simplify things. One of them's in Dublin, one of them's in New York. BGP advertises them as the same IP address, but with two different routes, one to the server in New York and one to the server in Dublin. Well, you in California, you'll get routed to New York, I'll get routed to Dublin, but we're both going to the same IP address. I had no idea. Yeah. So BGP lets IP addresses, it's called multicast IP addressing. So the same IP address can exist on multiple physical servers and BGP makes all that possible. So now imagine you're Facebook. You have this massive infrastructure delivering services around the world and you have DNS servers. And officially you have like, you know, four IP addresses, I think it is for Facebook DNS servers. But there's not four servers, just thousands of servers. And those four DNS servers happen to be, sorry, those DNS servers happen to be running some automation that when you tell the DNS servers that there's one, that there's a new server being powered up or powered down, they automatically send out the BGP notifications, which is normally a good thing. I bring up an extra VM, it automatically announces itself to the internet over BGP. Well, something went wrong and the DNS servers for Facebook ran their automation and unannounced every single route to themselves. So the, the, all of the server, or the, let's say the four servers that had, uh, were serving Facebook.com, they were what announced that they were gone? They, so they were DNS servers who had automation to do BGP announcements, and they sent out a BGP announcement that effectively took themselves off the internet. So huh. they sent out a message saying, Don't, I'm no longer a route for this IP address, and they sent out one for every single route that existed. So there were zero routes to, to Facebook's DNS server left on the internet. So the, the DNS servers were still sitting there going, uh, knowing who they were, but Gosh, they had told them- quiet here today. Yeah. <laughs> the server room got really cool. <laughs> yeah. Because all of the routers that make up the heart of the internet, basically their routing tables were all updated to say there is no path to these IP addresses. Every single path is revoked. So there isn't a BGP server or no, set is, of BGP there's, servers. There's BGP announcements done by DNS servers. It, okay, normally DNS servers don't do that. That is an automation Facebook created for their own management. Oh, and that's not a normal way to do it. That's not a normal thing. Oh. Right? Well, that's interesting. But you know, everyone okay. has their own scripts for automating processes, right? You, you, know, sure. you, you have a thing where you spawn a new VM and it does five different things automatically. Well, in this case, Facebook's processes had an automatic do a BGP announcement. Hmm. And they misannounced badly. They they took the they they broadcast to the internet that they don't exist. And the internet went, Sir, yes, sir, you don't exist. Wow. Way they went. I sure hope like a single sysadmin didn't get fired for this. Well, I hope not, but it, it kind of so once that happened, right? Once those DNS servers went offline because their IP addresses became unreachable. It then became impossible to use any Facebook address, including all the backend stuff, like, say, the VPNs the staff use to connect into the data centers. Mm. They all fell off the internet. So you had remote working. Yeah, nobody's have, in the office. Yeah. Now, once they figured out what was going on, they had to get into the data centers to actually connect into the console on one of the routers to issue new BGP announcements 
saying, no, 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 really, we're here, we're here. <laughs> talk well, to us, talk to us. My favorite part of that was that I read that the, uh, the badge system didn't work to get into right, the bu- buildings physically because that was also part of the, the problem. Exactly. Everything uses DNS, right? You're configuring DNS names into everything. Yeah. So, it, basically, did they use an axe to get in? How did they get in the building in the end? <laughs> or was Phil already in there when it happened? And they're like calling Phil on the phone. Phil, Phil, don't close the door. Get a wedge. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we don't know that level of detail, obviously, but the security on a data center like that is extreme because it has to be because they're they're a, such a big target. So working from home and their own security basically meant that it took them six hours to undo a simple script that went wrong and unannounced too many routes, all of them. And it it just reminded me so much of my worst day as a sysadmin. And my worst day as a sysadmin is sort of a similar story because it involved the circular dependency. And uh, in my case, it all came to light because a swan had an even worse day than me. A swan managed to connect one end of itself to one high-voltage cable at 33,000 volts and the other end at another cable and took out half a county Kildare. Oh, jeez. And our data center was supposed to be on backup power, battery Mm -hmm. power. Turns out our batteries failed. And our data center, for the first time and as long as anyone can remember, the entire thing powered down completely. Dead. 100% silence. I have never heard silence in that room before. It was silent. And when we powered it back up, the infrastructure for our VMs, our private cloud, needed DNS to boot, and the DNS VMs are hosted on the private cloud. (laughs) So we ended up having to find the IP addresses in documents laying around on people's desktops (gasps) and put ETC hosts files into the private cloud so that it could bring itself up without DNS to then be able to start DNS. You actually had to resort to paper documents that you got lucky people had. No, they weren't paper. They were like Word docs and things. Oh, okay. On people's desktop machines that were not connected to the cloud, right? Because we couldn't get into Office 365 because we were completely off the air. We didn't have DNS. We didn't have anything. Wow. Wow. So I felt for those Facebook guys because I was like, I've been here before. I know what kind of day you're having. You know, it's it's funny how... Maybe it's rare, but every once in a while you get a double failure. We had uh, we had a squirrel that ate through a, a power line into a building that um, a complex that housed. Oh God, I think it's about three or four thousand people, and uh, it took out all the power. But we had generators; they were offline for maintenance. They were out of gas. It's amazing how often that happens. So, like, you couldn't even put them back on. It is <laughs> now we didn't end up with this problem, but uh, wow! I mean, but you can see I, how ha- one failure can cascade, right? Yeah, yeah. God, I do feel bad for the sysadmins, and and it, sadly, in my experience, it ends up being somebody gets fired for something like this when it's like, no, if you built it wrong. You can't you can't complain about Phil typed the wrong number. No, we still don't know what caused the actual misconfiguration, right? They were changing the cluster. They were they were either commissioning or decommissioning machines. So there was a change being made which should have resulted in announcements going out, but something went wrong and the wrong announcements went out. Mm. So they were doing a change, but it wasn't supposed to be quite that dramatic. I wonder if we'll ever know. 
I'm amazed we know as much as we do. True, true. Yeah, it, it it's it, I, what I found uh, a couple of things interesting about it was the the cascading effect on the internet that basically everything slowed to a crawl because every app that was trying to get to Facebook kept trying harder. You know, it, when the app gets a failure, a Facebook app on a phone or a desktop or whatever gets a, a failure to from the from the server, the first thing it does is it tries again. So it was yep. just this mounting difficulty, and that's not even counting everybody hitting refresh, 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 and then going, well, well, let me go over to WhatsApp and talk to my friends about it. Wait, WhatsApp's not working. What's going on? Go and try again, try again, try again. And uh, so the the cascading effect, uh, the interesting effect of how, ma- how many users was it Telegram added? Something like it 70, 70, 70 million? Was it million? It, it's a, 70 million. It's in the show notes there. Yeah, 70 million new users. Well, yeah, WhatsApp was down. I mean, I liked that because I'm a big Telegram user, and I really dislike WhatsApp. Um, but uh, it the other effect is it it kind of took the focus off of the whistleblower situation uh, a little bit because it, it it brought the internet to its knees and uh, people couldn't do much work. Um, there's an, a company I meant to give this to you ahead of time. There's a company called. I want to call them haystacks. I'll see if well, I can it's find. Funny, but you did actually give it to me. It's in the show notes. Thirty-two percent increase in productivity by developers. Yeah. So this is a company that they they measured the throughput of their developers as a function of when uh, when Facebook went down, and it wasn't like they were writing more code or doing more, but they were cleaning things up. Where it's like, so at that portion of the day for the last hour and a half, do they all just fool around on Facebook instead of doing their jobs? But but the, the article is real interesting because the company is like really strong on, we are not measuring people. We're not going to use this for anything. You know, we just, we just noticed, hey, look, what are all those commits coming in? Yeah, our logs had this odd graph that didn't look like every other day. Yeah, what did that? Uh, what did that mean? And I, I thought that was that was really interesting. What happened to the productivity of the globe? Uh, but I do want to say back on the. Um, I guess I said it last week, but as a result of the whistleblower, I stopped uh, Facebook, WhatsApp, and uh, tele- uh, Instagram, and I'm I'm trying it on for size. It's now been like a week and a half, and. Other than getting to here. talk to the community in Facebook, the 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 Nocilla Castaways in Facebook, I do miss that. But um, every the number of people coming into Slack, it's it's been a big influx uh, in the last week and a half. So maybe other people are feeling the same kind of thing. So join us, podv.com/slash/slack. Yeah, I've been in the no Facebook water for a while. It's it's good in here. Join us. Yeah, you are in the WhatsApp water though, because you're family, right? Yeah, pandemic induced. You know. You got to draw the line somewhere, right? It's uh, yep. Some things are more important. Yeah. So, what would have been a deep dive? We're gonna. It's in the show notes later on as a news story, but I'm actually just gonna do it now in a little bit more detail. Basically, Apple released. Apple updated the help document saying they had done end-to-end encryption on bookmarks in Safari, and then a few days later, they changed the page to say that they had encryption while the doc, while the bookmarks were in transit and at rest. And they're not the same thing, even though a lot of people would consider it to be, well, it must be end-to-end encrypted. If it's encrypted when it's moving and it's, if it's encrypted when it's stopped, how is it not end-to-end encrypted? And the answer is it's all about who has the keys. So if it's encrypted while it's on Apple servers, but Apple have the keys, then it's not end-to-end encrypted. Right. So, so based on the way Apple changed the wording, it would appear that 
it's not end-to-end encryption. It is, we encrypt it for you in transit, which is normal. That's, you know, TLS, SSL, HTTPS, etc. And we encrypt it for you on our servers, but they're doing the encryption. So it's not end-to-end encrypted. They could hand it over if they were given a warrant. So this is specifically about Safari bookmarks? No, no, Safari bookmarks is the excuse to say, when you read something that says, this is encrypted at rest, and this is encrypted in transit, that does not mean end-to-end encryption, even though you might think it does. Okay. What's, what's bringing true. the subject up right now? I, I, I'm not catching that. Okay. Apple updated their health doc to say, we have done end-to-end encryption on Safari bookmarks. And then they corrected themselves to say, Safari bookmarks are encrypted in transit and at rest. But we have the keys. No, no. So what I'm saying is Apple corrected themselves to it is encrypted in transit and at rest. And I am saying when you read those words, that means. So by correcting themselves from end-to-end encryption, that tells you that is the difference, right? So if they say say end-to-end encrypted, that means they don't have the keys. Correct. But if they say at rest and in transit, they may have the keys. Correct, correct. The only time you're allowed to say end-to-end encrypted is if the keys only exist at the ends. Hmm. So it's just very interesting that Apple wrote something that was technically incorrect and then corrected it to something that reads almost the same in English, but there's massive difference in meaning in those two sentences. Interesting. So we've we've known that about... What is it? Uh, isn't that... Is that true of iMessage? Um, iMessage is slightly different. iMessage is end-to-end encrypted, but the key management is done by software Apple wrote. So your phone does the key management, but it is your phone, so it is on the end. So they don't have the keys. They do not have the keys, but they, they write the software, and you don't have visibility of what the software is doing, so they could be forced to make the software secretly add an extra key. Okay. And if the software adds an extra key then the extra key could be used to spy on you. So we're trusting Apple that iOS does what Apple says iOS does. Okay. Interesting. Okay. But assuming it does, assuming it does what it says in the tin, as the old cliche goes, (laughs) it is end-to-end encrypted. Okay. All right. So the purpose of this was uh, deep. this mini deep dive, this diving into a shallow pool, was uh, to explain the difference between end-to-end encryption and end to end or and encryption at rest and in transit. Yeah, so it can be okay. encrypted everywhere and still not be end to end encrypted. Very interesting. Okay, yeah, it's it's it, as I say, it's a subtlety because you yeah. would, you know non technically that sounds like the same thing. Well, everywhere that's end to end. Yeah, more to it than that. So action alerts. Apple released iOS fifteen point zero point two, iPad OS fifteen point zero two, and Watch OS eight point zero point one. They fix a zero-day vulnerability. So patchy, patchy, Ooh. patch, patch. Okay. And remember last time we talked about two cranky developers who weren't getting credited by Apple for release notes? Yeah. One of those two developers just got done again. This is a flaw they reported, and Apple again failed to credit them. That one actually, where did I hear about that? I think I heard about that on Daily Tech News uh, show. Yeah. But that certainly is starting to look like a pattern, like you said last time. And I was like, nah, it's not a pattern. Yeah. Anyway, look, Apple, cup on. That's not fair. 
You don't make the don't make the security. Well, you know they don't have a lot of money. They can't afford to pay these people. <laughs> yeah, but all we want is a credit. Anyway, well, no, they, um, if they get credit, they get the money too. It depends on whether or not they qualify for the bounty program, because there's other rules for that. I mean, Apple have been crediting people for years; it doesn't guarantee them the bounty program. But anyway, that's, okay. that's not here nor there. And they can afford the bounty, of course they can, because you were being sarcastic. Um, it was Patch Tuesday. Uh, lots of stuff got patched, uh, but on the Windows end, some of those patches were bugs being actively exploited in the wild. So patchy, patchy, patch, patch for Windows people too. And if you are the kind of person who runs your own web server and that web server is powered by Apache, if you have your server set to automatically update itself, no problems. If you don't, you really need to patch your Apache and you need to make sure you patch it up to the very latest version because Apache released a patch that was patchy and they had to patch the patch. Patch really comes in on that one, yeah. It does, okay. yeah. So basically, they they rushed out a patch for a zero day being actively exploited, and the rushed out patch was broken, so they had to patch the patch. This is a dumb so. question, and it only applies to me, probably. How would I know if I'm having it automatically patched? Because we configured your server to do that automatically. Thank you. <laughs> okay. It's all about me. Okay. I don't remember ever question. patching it, so I hope so. Hmm. CPanel does your UM updates automatically. Ah, there we go. Okay, worthy warnings then. This is not a happy section of the show. Um, mm. There is a company which provides the routing of SMS messages between cell phone carriers. So they sit between your AT&Ts, your T-Mobiles, your Verizons, your Vodafones. In fact, they're a worldwide company, so China Mobile is even in the mix here. In fact, there are 235 carriers use this company as their back end. They have announced in a filing to the Securities and Exchange Commission, so in other words, really quietly, that they were hacked in May of 2016, and they didn't notice until May of 2021. Five years. Five years. During those five years, the attackers had access to call metadata, like who phoned who for how long, and the full content of all SMS messages. Oh my gosh! Now, do they think that's so, a state actor, or do they? I have, have not any seen anyone make an attribution yet. But either way, not good. So when people, you know, the reason I think this is important in the show notes is because the lesson to be learned here is that when you're offered a choice of two types of two-factor auth, and one of those types is not SMS, that's the answer. Because SMS is just not. We know it's not secure. And this, there's just, there's even more weak links than we realized. Yeah. It's a mess. It's a trick. Yeah, do you know, um, would this have affected RCS communications? Probably not, right? I don't know because RCS, RCS again has a key management issue. It, I don't know is the honest answer. Um, okay. I, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, As if Twitch. that wasn't enough fun. <laughs> Yeah, so Twitch, which are a major video sharing platform, I think the gamers like it for like live streaming their games and stuff. Isn't isn't that what Twitch is for? Yes. I know yeah. I don't use it, but I know, I know it's a big thing. So they had a leak which exposed their source code, which is potentially problematic because if there's any other bugs in there, the bad guys now see all the bugs. But much bigger problem, it also included passwords. So really, 
if you are a Twitch user, you really do need to change your password. And if you reuse that password elsewhere, you have a lot of work to do. Um, yeah, so that's where the real details. vulnerability. Remember that just because your Twitch password doesn't matter to you doesn't mean that that password doesn't matter to you if, if, if you've ever used it anywhere else. Allison says, speaking from direct experience, having been stupid on this topic. Sorry, See? being human on this topic. Human, yes. Thank you, Alison. I keep on correcting you like that when you do, 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 you know, say bad things about yourself. It's like, no, it's normal. <laughs> Can't trust the human. Indeed. And then meanwhile, um, Verizon apparently have like a child carrier or some sort of branded subcarrier called Visible. And they had a wee bit of a security issue. And the end result is that fraudsters have ordered iPhones on other people's dime. Ooh. So if you are a customer of Visible, have a good look at your credit card statements and your PayPal transactions because there is a non-zero chance someone is getting a shiny iPhone 13 on your dime. And you need to take action and report that fraud and get your money back. Hmm. Notable news then. Um, yeah, so the first story is the one that we're, we sort of kind of talked about already as these unscripted security medium. So next one then is uh, Apple have given developers notice that if their app allows you to create an account, you must also allow the user to delete that account from within your app and you have until the end of January to make it so. So as end users... I am delighted. That is exactly yeah, what it should be. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. So, thank you, Apple. Uh, and then in the UK, there was an interesting court case. Um, a judge has ruled that a neighbour, who seems to be a bit of an obnoxious neighbour, if best as I could read. Anyway, there was a neighbour with a lot of ring cameras pointing them at another neighbour's front door. And the other neighbor basically called it harassment and the whole thing went to court. And it, it seemed like it's it's not just a normal person using a normal ring as as you normally would. There's a little bit more to it than that. But the end result is that the judge ruled that if you take footage of your neighbor with your ring doorbell under data protection laws, that is the property of the person you took video of without permission. That Therefore, doesn't make you any sense to me at all. If you're taking video... Well, I guess it would depend. Were they looking in the neighbor's window? They were pointed straight at the neighbor's front door. So everything I I, going... That's outside in public. That would... Not I, that would, that would European law is quite... Yeah, that would European. not be the case here. Well, actually, you say that, but there's a podcast that I'm linking to here called... It's a podcast series called Nice Try, and their first episode of the new series was all about the doorbell. And under American law, the audio feature on the ring is illegal in many states. Because that is illegal wiretapping. You need to have two-party consent in a whole bunch of U.S. states. And the, U the U.K. judge explicitly said that the owner of the ring camera must install blinkers so that the camera can't look into the neighbor's house and must disable audio capture. What is a blinker? A physical, like on a horse. A shield. You know, like you know, like horses have yeah. these little things on the side. Blinders, seeing... blinders, not blinkers. They're called blinker blinkers is... in Europe. Really, a blinker to us is something that goes on, off, on, off, on, off. Like your turn signal triggers your blinkers. Yeah, we call them indicators. Yeah, no, horses have blinkers, which is why you can have a blinkered point of view. So they're saying that that ring doorbells have to be closed so you can't look out of them. No, they they can look onto the street, but they can't look into your neighbor's. Door, window, etc. Okay, so my house faces another house. 
my doorbell by definition looks at my at my neighbor's front door. There is no way. I guess you'd have to you'd have to angle it so that it only sees to the bottom of the door, not up to the top of the door. I say it's a UK it's a weird ruling, story. and there's a lot more yeah. going on here. There's a lot more going on here because, from as best as I can tell, the neighbor was was being very obnoxious, and there was a whole big kerfuffle here. But the audio one is particularly interesting, and that just completely chimed, if you'll excuse the terrible pun on doorbells, um, with the podcast I was listening to like five minutes before reading the story, because the audio feature on the ring is actually illegal in large chunks of the US. Making the doorbell ring? No, recording sound. Oh, okay. I thought you were talking about the the noise that a, a doorbell makes when it rings. No, no, given that the product is called Ring, the doorbell rings, there's too much ringing going on here, yes. So you can't record sound? In a whole bunch of US states, you need two-party permission to record sound. So you can't have a a doorbell then, a a video doorbell? Mm. I mean, it's... Well, Ring's official answer is, well, actually, we allow all these features to be tweaked per state, and we encourage our users to obey the law. So there's yeah, an off switch for the sound in your Ring doorbell, and the judge has said that this UK person must use that switch, and, and Ring's official answer is, oh yeah, it might be illegal in states to turn it on, but sure, we gave you a button. Your problem. Yeah. Um, boy, it just takes away like 50% of the usage of having a smart doorbell that, that I mean, I remember answering it in, I don't know, Nepal, and saying, yeah, just uh, leave the package. I'm in the, sh- uh, you know, I'm, I'm uh, getting yeah. dressed upstairs. I'll be right back down. I would not well, be able I'm to do that. Sh- I'm not sure about that because that's the intercom feature as opposed to just the re- constantly recording feature. It isn't constantly recording. Hmm. It, it's complicated. It's ba- yeah. Basically, the end result here is that it's complicated. And in the UK, it just got complicated. I guess if it's you- got motion detection. It's so bad at it, this is an irrelevant discussion. <laughs> it's really oh, slow. On the new products, the audio pickup is really strong and it picks up audio from a very long way away. Interesting. Okay. I just can never anyway. get to the... Ring Ring actually has two apps. It's got an app called Ring and it has another one called okay. Rapid Ring. If you if huh. you hit if you get a notification that somebody's at your door and you hit the Ring app, it takes forever to open up if you've got multiple ring apps, you've got a or ring uh, devices, you've got to click on the doorbell. Then when you click on the doorbell, it goes, oh, did you want to watch live? Let me. Oh, OK, let me go get that. But Rapid Ring goes right in and shows it to you. Why did you have to write a separate app? Why don't you make the real one at Rapid? That's that's insane. Our app sucks. We'll write a second app. Yeah. What? Yeah. I, you know, pro no, tip that's, that's for mad. ring users, download Rapid Ring. <laughs> Wow. Wow. Okay. Uh, In good news to wrap this one out, uh, 1Password have announced a new feature to make it easy to share passwords with other people who are not using 1Password. So basically, you send them a link, you choose how long the link lasts and how many times the link can be viewed before it self-destructs, like a message in an old episode of um, Mission Mission, Impossible. Mission Impossible, yeah. I, I love the name too. It's Psst. It's like P-S-S-T, I think it's an acronym. Is that right? It is It is an acronym, and I forgot to get the acronym. Um, very bad of me. But it, it, I watched the video. It's a really, it, it's so straightforward and simple, but brilliant. So much better than sending someone a password through Telegram or whatever. So. Yeah. 
Yeah, it is a good idea. It's a little more work than copying and sending it through through Telegram, but uh, it's uh, it's it's a cool feature. Yeah, it's PSST. But what does Which it stand for? for? Well, that's what I was supposed to be finding. Password secure sharing tool. Yeah, <laughs> of course it is. It's, it's a backronym, I'm sure, but I like it. Yeah, I, I approve. Uh, top tips then. Um, Tidbits have a nice article on how the two-factor code... Basically, as of iOS 15 and Safari 15 on the Mac, you can do the one-time passwords in Keychain, just like you can in one password. But the functionality is not nearly as obvious and in your face. So if you'd like to see how you can do that using Keychain, uh, the tutorial is over at Tidbits. And it's a long tutorial because it's not an easy interface as best as I can see. I did not know that you could even do that. In fact, it was in my list of reasons why I like 1Password better using a dedicated password manager versus uh, iCloud Keychain. Remember, iOS 15 has only been out a few weeks, so you were right until just a few weeks ago. Oh, so this is only on, this is not on the Mac, only on iOS. Uh, No, it's also Safari 15. Oh, okay, okay. So even older Macs get... So I wasn't wrong then, but I would have been wrong tomorrow if I hadn't listened to you. Great. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And then also, while we're linking to tutorials on new features, iMore have a nice one on how to use iCloud Private Relay and the one setting it has, which is how would you like your IP address to be geographically positioned? Uh, So I turned it on and I set it to uh, give me an Irish... or to give me a local IP address when it was pretending to be me so that I'd still see Irish news sites and stuff. Oh, but not located necessarily not where you to are. Me, yeah, okay. yeah. So not enough to spy on me, but enough that when I search for stuff, it doesn't tell me about a takeaway in Jamaica. Okay, so I could do downtown Los Angeles or something, but not uh, my actual. Yeah, city. I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't let you choose, but you basically say that I would like you to pick an IP address near me. Well, near me. It doesn't define it. It it is a toggle which has two values. Globally, globally, basically no location data or vague location data. They are your two choices. So the vague one hopefully is not accurate. <laughs> no, no. They, like if you read a, if you read their description of how how it works, it's never accurate. The problem people are having with the vague one is that it's too vague. Oh, no okay. one's having a problem that it's too specific. Okay, interesting. No. Yeah, just two toggles. I turned them on. I'm going to see what happens. Uh, I turned them on this morning, so I'll, I'll see if I end up hating it, but I don't imagine I will. We yeah. shall see. Uh, in terms of interesting insights, then, two things caught my eye. Uh, the Intercept have a detailed post. They got their hands on Facebook's secret blacklist. It's a fascinating discussion. The Intercept are often very harsh on Facebook, but even the Intercept are like, Facebook is stuck between a rock and a hard place here because... They're coming under fire for not sharing the blacklist, but if they share the blacklist, it would be far too easy for people to work around it. So they probably can't share their blacklist. But it is kind of interesting that there appears to be some cultural and racial bias in said blacklist, and that is avoidable. And that's probably a result of there not being any transparency. Starting with the phrase blacklist? Fair point. I'm reading the intercepts headline because yeah. I do not use that word anymore. I, I use allow list and block list. Um, right. Just like I don't use master slave anymore when describing databases, it's primary and secondary. So you're um, saying they, they actually, the intercept revealed this, this uh, uh, disallow list? Correct. Well, that's what not is good. Interesting, well, uh, no, they, no, they didn't release, they, no, they didn't just publish it. They got their hands in it. 
analyzed it and have done a detailed report about what's in the list without just dumping the list. Okay. It's a fascinating read, and The Intercept would be inclined to be anti-Facebook, and yet even they are like, yeah, we kind of got to give it to Facebook here. There's no right answer. There's just wrong and less wrong. Okay. I find it fascinating. Hence, it's an interesting insight. It's not good news, bad news. It's, huh. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. And fascinating to me was a discussion on the Ezra Klein show. Um, So a lot of talk about crypto tends to get stuck up in the details about what is a cryptocurrency? What is an NFT? How does the technology work? But Ezra and his guest had a very, very different conversation. Assume all the tech just works and that it's become easy to use and that everyone is fluent in it. What does that mean for society? Hmm. What is and it was so it's a fantasy piece. I'm not sure fantasy is quite the right word. It's a it's it's a question of like what are the actual implications here of the uh, of the tech of the what the technology enables. How how could that change the world? And the question they ask themselves is if you if you in the late eighties were to, to were to try to predict what the internet would do to the world. How much would you be right about and how much would you be wrong about? Because obviously you would imagine stuff like Wikipedia would come into being, but you probably wouldn't think democracy would end up being paralyzed by large multinational companies. Right, right. Interesting. That's a fascinating discussion. Um, And unlike all the other crypto talk, it's not about the different algorithms and how the encryption works. We just assume the encryption works. We just assume crypto works. And then we ask the bigger questions. And I haven't heard that before. So that's sort of why it caught my eye. Yeah, the the part of um, fantasy I meant was that people know what they're doing and are sophisticated. I may be slightly overselling it. Imagine it's like the you know like the internet is now. It's it's just ubiquitous, right? We don't worry about how TCP/IP works. We don't need to worry about it. TCP/IP works. The internet works. So what does that mean? Well, think of you know we get to the stage where the technology undermining undermining underlying. <laughs> <laughs> The technology underlying the whole crypto thing is as stable as the internet is in general. What does that mean? That's a fascinating discussion. Yeah, yeah. In terms of palate cleansing then, uh, oh, I have an indentation error here for you to fix in the show notes. Uh, So there's a NASA astronaut who's up on the ISS at the moment called Shane Kim. I'm going to pronounce it Kimborough because that's how we'd pronounce it with the UK and Irish accent and with the O-U-G-H. It certainly looks like it's Scottish or Irish. Anyway, however he pronounces his surname, he's an astronaut on the ISS with a camera who's not afraid to use it. And he's been pointing his camera lens down at various cities at nighttime and then tweeting out the photographs. And so he came to my attention first when he tweeted Dublin. And I think Alistair Jenks at replied me in the tweet to Dublin. And then the next day I was reading the Brussels Times and they got a headline that he tweeted a photograph of Brussels City at night. So he's obviously really big on tweeting out photographs of cities and it's fascinating how different the two pictures are for a start and it's just really fun to see the cities you know from above at night so it's kind of nice oh how fabulous that sounds really really neat yeah so a little fun follow and then the last one i just threw in because i just loved it so it was posted on the mac observer could have been posted anywhere it's an explanation of what it actually means when your weather app says there's a hundred percent chance of rain (laughs) because it is entirely possible for your weather app to say there's a 100% chance of rain for you to stay completely dry 
and for your app to be completely correct. Oh, I think we've all always wondered what that really means there. Well, the big takeaway here is what area is the percentage for? Is it for your town, your state, or your country? If there's a 100% chance of rain in Ireland, it means that someone in Ireland is going to get wet that hour. <laughs> right, but right, Ireland right. is a big place. So you can say dry and, it can, and someone got wet. <laughs> if it's a forecast for County Kildare, then my chances of getting wet are much bigger because that's a much smaller area. And if it's a forecast for Maynooth, I'm going to get wet. But I've always wondered, so is, it, is it a 40% chance that's that it will rain or yes. 40% of this area has a 100% chance of getting rain. So it is the percentage chance of at least 0.1 millimeters of rain within the area. Okay. Well, you know, 0.1 millimeters around here, we'd shut the freeways down. So that's a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, and and it's a take the difference. kids outside to experience it. <laughs> Ooh, look at this shiny thing, yeah. Ooh, it's wet. So anyway, that, that's all I got for today. All right, that was a fun ending to a rather brutal episode, but uh, it's, uh, that's what we need. All right, thanks, Bart. Okie dokie. Folks, remember, until next time, stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that is going to wind us up for this week. Did you know that you can email me at allison at podfee.com anytime you like? If you have a question or a suggestion, just send it on over. I've left Facebook, at least for now, so Twitter is a good place to follow me online at Podfeet. Better yet, join our Slack community at podfeet.com slash Slack, where you can talk to me, but also all of the other lovely Nocilla castaways. A ton of new people have come over since uh, the Facebook stuff going on. Now remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com. You can support the show at podfeed.com slash Patreon or with a one-time donation at podfeed.com slash PayPal. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeed.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. And I hope I will see you at podfeed.com slash chat during the live event on Monday from Apple. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.